Greetings, future fossils from Melbourne, Australia, on the first full Australian day of a month-long tour that I'm taking through this country and its summer music festivals, speaking, painting live, playing music. Got a number of tour dates in the cities to Melbourne, Sydney, Wollongong, Byron Bay. It's a very exciting time, a very important time to be out in the world as a hopeful and inspired and diplomatic American, <laughs> you know. I'll be recording a lot of podcasts out here also, so keep an ear out for those in the weeks and months to come. Before we start this most <laughs> irreverent episode with Corey Allen, I want to invite you to subscribe to Future Fossils on iTunes, on Stitcher, wherever you listen to this show. Subscribe, rate, and review the show. It helps us out immeasurably. Also, if you're one of the other listeners of this podcast, poor ambivalent bastards who really this is all about. Still uses Facebook, serving the nascent planetary self emerging through us all. So, if you can get behind that kind of rhetoric, please. Do us a solid and spread the word. Also, this podcast is ad-free due to the support of patrons on my Patreon page. That's patreon.com slash Michael Garfield, where I put out all of my new music, writing, art, and all of the other creative work that I do. If you like keeping these podcasts conversation-heavy and marketing light, then consider joining the community of patrons over there and give yourself a hug for me until we get to see each other in person. And with that, let's welcome astral hustler, jazz Buddha, madman, Corey Allen to the Future Fossils podcast. Get you the fuck out of here. Yeah. <laughs> it's always a good way to start a All right. Hello everybody. This is Future Fossils Podcast. I'm Michael Garfield. Co-host Evan Snyder is on hiatus at the moment. So it's just me and Corey Allen today, our fabulous guest, with whom I just spent the last three hours having a non-recorded conversation, which is the interesting thing about putting the, the rhetorical emphasis in this show on archival and legacy and continuity and the future listening is that I have a lot of conversations with people. I had one with author J.F. Martell last week where there is a recording glitch for one reason or another and half or all of the conversation is gone. Uh, my buddy Chef Duden and I had one of those boom festival where we lost the first hour of the, the real juicy stuff. Mm-hmm. And uh, as I was talking about with Corey a moment ago, the the show isn't just about the message. It's also about the contemplation of mortality of that message. And, you know, the fact that these things aren't all getting recorded. You know, like the weird thing for me about hosting a podcast is 
how many amazing conversations, in some cases, the best conversations happen off record. And yet, maybe that doesn't change the basis, the the framing of it. Maybe it's the, the future doesn't need our digital audio in order to crunch some vast AI computation of all of the air particles in the room and being able to reconstruct what they looked like a hundred years ago. Yeah. The future is going to be just fine. Yeah. They don't, they don't need our recordings. So, you know, you you look at those podcasts as uh, broken fossils. Yeah. So that's the thing too, is like, you know, we've, we've discovered maybe 1% of all of the dinosaur species that ever lived, you know, so we have, there's no guarantee that anyone's going to listen to this and that's just fine. And and how, how weird is, is, uh, is that the dinosaurs? They, they think that they had feathers. How weird is that? Yeah, I mean, it's just we have this idea in our mind of like you know from from being a kid. It's like yeah, there were these giant lizards. Blah blah blah. You've always, everything is <laughs> everything is is seen. All imagery, Jurassic Park, all Hollywood movies. You know, any the t shirts, books, everything about dinosaurs was always that they're lizards. And then now there are some reports are saying, oh, actually, we think that they all had had feathers. Well, there's there's a book called All Tomorrows. I think that's the name of it. I wish this book were around when I was a kid because it, it's essentially a literary deconstruction of scientific narrative reconstructions of uh-huh. the ancient world. And so they show, you know, if we were going to reconstruct a tiger the way that we reconstruct a dinosaur today, this is what a tiger would or a goat mm. or these other modern creatures that we know they have all of these bizarre plumage or colors or you know, use, soft tissue features. That's a good pickup line. You want to check out my bizarre plumage? You want to check out my, my waddle? <laughs> so, they, so this thing is, you know, that they, there's like, oh, we, you know, we could, for all we know, we could be 5,000% wrong. Mm-hmm. You know, tyrannos- every Tyrannosaurus Rex could have had a huge pot belly, you know, with an udder <laughs> hanging from it for all we know. That'd and it's preferable. Like, so there's, there's that. I've been on the bird's, our dinosaurs tip since I was a small child. Uh-huh. So sure. it doesn't weird me out. But the cool thing is noticing what does weird you out. Right. And this is where we touch into your work as <laughs> as both a an audio engineer and mm-hmm. a, a a mindfulness trainer. It's interesting to notice what I find surprising mm-hmm. because it reveals my expectation. Right. You know, and so it's like, it's often that, that encounter with the quote unquote truth or rather a refreshed apparent mm-hmm. truth. It's like, well, it's still Maya or whatever, but to encounter the updated version of it and it being different from the memory or the expectation. Yeah. It's highlighting the dark places on your map. Yeah. Yeah. So that's like the, the dragon is the, on that map is actually where you will find your own surprise. You know, so yeah. people are afraid of being surprised. You know? I, I love it. I love it. But you I, hate I, horror movies. I, did I say that? You did. When? You might've been joking. I don't, I don't, I don't recall saying that. Um, I don't, I don't like them. That is a fact, but okay. I don't remember saying that. Interesting. Um, I really don't think I said that. You may not have used the word hate. Uh, when did we talk about horror movies? I have a really good memory. Yeah, you know what? Actually, I had a conversation right before I met you today. Mm-hmm. That it may have been, it may have been someone else. I think it probably was. Anyway, so. <laughs> I have a cre- My memory is so creepy that I have to. I sometimes kind of like play it down a little bit. 
Oh, because you don't want the girl to realize that you accidentally <laughs> saw her phone number and, and instantly memorized it? Yeah. Yeah. It just in conversations in journal a lot of mm. times, you know, because it, it's, it's so weird to be like, actually, what we said was these, these three sentences. So it's good to just, just take it down a notch. You know what I mean? There, well, I know. I, I appreciate you calling me on it because usually I'm that guy that's like, <laughs> no, you definitely... <laughs> said this and i find myself like they just put out that thing with the the rolling buffer the audio buffer mm. so that whenever you want you can capture the last minute uh-huh. and share the last minute of mm-hmm. audio and otherwise it just constantly records over itself right i find myself being one of those people that's like yes that day has come cuz if it's your word versus someone else's who knows but if it's on record, then you could, you could be the asshole who was right. Yeah, it's true. But I think that also if you're approaching life in a way in which you're relying on a recorded version of your conversation to justify your current points, then you're approaching life wrong in general. Unless you're a police officer, in which case, you know, like when I accidentally camped at the wrong spot Mm -hmm. at Enchanted Rock last week. The guy came up and the park ranger was wearing a camera. I was like, that's, it's actually really nice to see that that's, it only solves half the problem. The other half is that that should be a live feed. Yeah. You know, that's (laughs) That's what my first thought was him talking to his partner being like, can you believe they actually think these are on or even have any any guts inside of them? There's these little plastic shells that look like cameras. (laughs) Totally. But, you know, I think, I mean, that's... That's, no, you know what that is? That's where their third eyes have been extracted and then encapsulated into that thing that seems to look like a camera. But it's actually this kind of uh, weird, uh, you know, mind control device that the government is, has placed on. It's, it's like they can, they can have it next to their, their body, but they can't actually uh, use it at all. Hmm. That is actually like uh, Wayne Barlow who is a, a painter and he he actually was all over Facebook railing on the fact that Jurassic World didn't give dinosaurs feathers, mm-hmm. that they hadn't updated it because he he's done a lot of dinosaur illustration. But he also did a book on hell, Barlow's Inferno. And in that book, the soul of the damned is represented by this black orb that every one of them has like monstrously located in their body somewhere, like a deformity mm-hmm. sticking out. They've somehow become separate from and yet still attached to their their essence, but that they're, they're sort of the disfigured mm-hmm. vestige still clinging to the soul. That's cool. You know, that yeah. kind of, it's got that same, like the little black shiny yeah, camera certainly on does. The, in the park. Yeah. Right <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Although no offense, I'm sure he's a great guy. <laughs> yeah. I so I think that it's the curious thing to me about uh, birds, ha- or, you know, dinosaurs having feathers, is that it is anything that's you know got some hair, some fluff, some some feather to it is so much less threatening to humans than something that's scaly mm. and just lizardy. So to think that the, it's like they instantly become so cute, yeah, you know, until they reveal their little little teeth there, but they're. Uh, yeah, it just kind of demonsterizes them a lot, just as the way that humans respond towards other animals. Like, if you got a face, we'll give you the time of day. Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> like worms, you're going to be in laboratory experiments, you know. Uh, but 
snakes we're yeah we're gonna use you as a symbol for you know evil and and you know entire you know course of western religion because you ain't got no arms or legs <laughs> missed no shoulders over here slithering around you're gonna be that you got a face but you're the face of evil yeah. try again and then <laughs> but then you get to you know rabbits dogs cats we take good care of them because they're they're furry, they're they're more close to us than a snake or a worm. Now they got a good face on them. You can recognize emotional responses or what we anthropomorphize as emotional responses. And uh, yeah, so <laughs> with dinosaurs having feathers, you know, also your cat is meowing, which I think they're applauding what I'm saying right now. Either you that know? or she's she's. Attempting to manipulate you. <laughs> Which, that's definitely, cats are amazingly good at doing. Um, but yeah, it is funny to think about them being just a little less intuitively icky mm-hmm. by having feathers. Yeah, you know, the, having one of those little Bambi raptors or whatever. <laughs> replacing, that's the actual name <laughs> a of miniature. the animal. That's, that's the velociraptor family critter that's about the size of a, like a man coon or a small dog. Uh-huh. And just the thought that it's curled up in a little loaf in yeah. the corner, you know, and it's a claws are retracted. Yeah. And, you know. Yeah. And then when it's feeding time, you know, you get like the the beef roast out of the fridge and just throw this three pounds of red meat right at it. And then, then well, you're good. That's, that's actually, and that's the thing actually about encountering that dragon at the edge of the map mm-hmm. is that the closer you get to it, you know, you see somebody... This is the whole, you know, psychology behind drone warfare, right? Right. Like if if you are on a video game screen where the resolution is is intentionally low enough that you can't actually make out the facial expressions of the people that right. you're remotely firing on, then you know, you're going to have a different you know, a different relationship to mm-hmm. them than you are if you can't fire until you see the whites of their eyes. Right. You know, and then it's like there is there's this thing like, oh, the more intimately we discover the ancient world, the more it goes from being this monstrous, prehistoric terror type situation to being like, oh, well, it's kind of relatable. Okay, you know, oh, they had families. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh, they fed their babies. You know that other babies. Oh, they're so they're, human. They're they fed their cute. babies other animals' babies. Yeah, they were you know not so bad after all. They were just like us. <laughs> wow, I really don't think that. And maybe it's just my kind of general agnosticism about my own existence. But whenever I look at that, I don't think of that as like terrifying or monstrous. You know, the dinosaur, I mean, it's purely, I mean, it's actually super extremely human in a lot of ways because it's just nature, like without any interference whatsoever. And there is violent death and, and, you know, a whole lot of carnivores roaming around. Um, but I think that saying or like the idea that that is monstrous or terrifying is inserting the human consciousness over uh, a experience of being that has nothing to do with us. It's just a state of being. There's nothing terrifying about it. It's just being. Us saying it's scary is the human ego having to insert our paradigm on prehistory uh-huh. which is you know it's just what 
we typically do. That's one of these ideas I've been trying, I've been expressing a, a lot over the last couple of years is that all of this resurgence and renaissance around talking about consciousness is, is great. But still, whenever I present the idea that looking at consciousness through the, the lens and, and filter of human consciousness is still um, missing the point in a lot of ways. Because it suggests that everything that we are, you know, cognating mm. <laughs> through our human lens is um, has to do with us, and that every all of this consciousness ideas and the expand the idea about you know what our consciousness means and related to the cosmos and so forth, the internal, the external, it's completely one hundred percent wrapped up in humanness. Whenever human consciousness is a symptom of the universe existing, not the other way around. So it's not human consciousness, it's just consciousness. That's, in my opinion, that's the, the thing to, that interests me and I think is perhaps a, a broader area of exploration is taking the human element as, uh, out of it to a degree other than, mm -hmm. of course, the... the uh, you know, that's how we're going through life is by being online with human consciousness. But when thinking about the, the cosmos, trying to see how much you can get out of relating it to the fact that it is there for you to observe it, you know, that we're placing or like kind of anthropomorphizing the universe. That's uh, so what I hear a lot of people, most people doing. It's like a playboy girl. Or something. Yeah. It's like it's how like everything relates to them and their consciousness. It's like, yeah, but that's one tiny frequency of consciousness out of infinity is your puny, our puny little human frequency. So, you know, getting out of that and thinking about it as a symptom of greater awareness and not awareness in the sense of that the universe is, has a name and skin and teeth. And again, you know, that's the human description, but it's like, yeah, it's just a wah, wah, wah of, of happening of cells and energy and vibrations it's like that is the consciousness. Our thing is just a, well, a tiny little piece of it. I learned a vocabulary word last night. Lay it on me. Allopoiesis. So like autopoiesis is the process of self-becoming. Mm -hmm. You know, this is what they talk about, like uh, self-organization in, in living systems. Oh, this autopoiesis of I'm, a cell. I'm real, I did a whole album about that. Oh, dude. The, great, the great Order. Yeah. It's about self-organization. You know, the... So uh, spontaneous order of nature articulated through music. Well, shit. <laughs> Apparently, we need to know each other better than we do. Uh, I can take my shirt off. I've, I've, <laughs> I've definitely written a few tracks cool. about that very thing. But then there's allopoiesis, which is the process of becoming the other. Mm -hmm. And that that's one of the the hallmarks of the psychedelic experience is of a direct encounter with the absolutely alien, uh, you know, yeah. and, the, and okay. the, I mean, whether or not you, you know, I'm not talking about an extraterrestrial right, right. Sure, sure, sure. and you know, this whole self other boundary thing is relative to where you ordinarily perceive that boundary. Sure. You know, that the, that the other is your own unconscious mind from one frame, mm -hmm. you know, but that there's this, this aspect of, I mean, I think most people have had the experience of even if it's just from sitting on their leg for too long mm -hmm. and then looking down at this thing and being like, that's not me. Right. You know, and having it right now. Yeah. 
So, or, or, you know, there's this, this question about more, more directly to your point about, you know, consciousness, human consciousness. We have a sample size of one right now. Right. We're hopefully just a few years away from having regular conversations with dolphins, you know, <laughs> and then, then maybe we can start collaboratively piecing together uh -huh. what consciousness is from a certain point. Yeah. I mean, you think about the sign language with, with gorillas has been going on since what, like the seventies. Yeah. So there you go. I mean, there's, they're already communicating. Or, there's a bit know. of with, you know, chimps, bonobos, right. gorillas. Coco. Was, yeah. she, she crushed it with the sign language. Yeah. I don't, she, I don't know if you saw the, this message where she was talking about how disappointed she was in people for, <laughs> not to, and that's where you got to wonder that's where you got to wonder like i'm that's pretty amazing. sure if i put a deaf person up to this video that they would explain that the sign language is accurately representing but it's like well okay but now they i'm pretty sure that they trained the gorilla to that they didn't just make up a bunch of stuff to like lure this gorilla right. into some sort of political campaign right right and all of it gets more complex is it's like well what what how how is the gorilla understanding and relating to the semantic system or or the you know the hand language system put forward by the people who taught it like how to look further into that is like to um our anthropomorphization of her expression is still a layer that i think should be taken into account where uh -huh. it's like you can teach them a system of hand signs which you know have different sentiments but to what level of awareness does that creature and how richly and deeply is that creature using those to express uh, ideas and are they nuanced and as subtle as we are um, taking them as? Or is it like because she can sort of like communicate somewhat in a very, very primitive way with hand signals, which is totally amazing. It's like how much of the gaps and quote unquote humanness are we kind of putting into that? Mm. into the very observation of it. I'm sure that's still a valid question, even after people have spent our entire lifetime. Right. Because it takes... Pursuing this professionally. Exactly. And that they that somebody probably has a way better answer to that question Certainly. than either of us. Probably people that actually work with her. Yeah. <laughs> people can be like, no, 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 no. She totally knows. Yeah, yeah. Totally. What, like, you know. like, is it two dudes that haven't thought about Coco in eight years? <laughs> or is it someone that, that actually is still seeing her every day and working with her? That, that dude or lady has a great Yeah, but, you know, I think, I mean, we are still sort of, and we're going to be for a long time, parsing experience from human experience. Right. You know, and it's... And there's nothing wrong with it because it's a filter through which we experience reality, but... I think just like in you're talking about in some you know transcendent or psychedelic experience, saying that you're knowing the other. The reason why I went nah, was because um, I think that inherently in that description of the other should be the description of the awareness of the fact that you're receiving that through the conduit of the human nervous system. Oh yeah, and sure. you know what I mean. And and that's just a good, healthy kind of scientific approach to intangible data to show like you know we talked about this two hours ago mm -hmm. where it's like yeah you know you get into these complex murky states of consciousness or thought or even verbal explanation and i think it's so important to make it clear that uh you know you're aware that of your subjectivity and it because so many and that's sort of one of the rabbit holes that i think people go down a lot and 
having those experiences and they'd start defining them as this was, this is, this happened. I experienced mm-hmm. this and this and this. But to me, that is sort of a, uh, if you hear people talk about psychedelic or some even, you know, meditative spiritual experience, whatever it could be that they had that uh, they believe that they, you know, made their consciousness rip through some membrane into the other mm-hmm. um, by their very description of it as being truth tells me that they don't understand their own consciousness. Well, there's that. I mean, there's also, you know, the the different uh, cultural conventions about talking about this stuff. You know, like there is the sense in which you're making love and you're never actually feeling the other person. Well, yeah, with all the leather and spikes (laughs) and stuff, you wouldn't. Yeah, I mean, mean, it's like for me, it's really like through like plexiglass is my (laughs) thing, you know. But, um, you know, I'm, I'm into the like... The Billy. Uh, mine, I like the bulletproof glass. When I like to shoot at someone with live rounds, <laughs> there's a hole in bulletproof glass, but I have to be shooting at them, you know, during. So he's just like, you're, you're not real. <laughs> but, but, um, so like, here's, here's a thought that might be, uh, useful to orienting ourselves in this space that selfhood might be, uh, something that you sort of position at, say, the North Pole of a sphere. The, on the South Pole is otherhood, mm-hmm. right? But from where you are, all you can see is to the horizon, right? You know, so there's you never really see all the way around, mm-hmm. you know. And as you walk over there, you know yourself with relationship to that fixed point moves but the 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 relative point is always on the opposite end of it you know so there's i think there is a this is this is like my my habit is just to the yogi berra quote like arrive mm-hmm. at a fork in the road i take it right you know anytime right. we encounter one of these this is my my woo woo prevention mm. foolproof mechanism right here which is the fail safe it's like anytime we notice that we're getting to this point where we could talk for an hour about how things are this way or this way. It's like, well, no, no, no. That's, it is the case that we never see beyond the virtual environment presented to us, mm-hmm. you know, by the, the nervous system. Uh, yeah, yeah. But it's also the case that our own subjectivity and, and uh, experience of being completely bound by that membrane... Mm-hmm is inseparably a part of that absolute other, mm-hmm. you know, that invisible ecosystem that's supporting all of that stuff. Mm-hmm. So it's, you don't really, on the one hand, you can never really know the other. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, you never really know anything but the other. Right. You know? Right, because you are the other. Right. Yeah, you exactly. are the, the fucking alien. Yeah. And, that's, and that's where, you know, that alien as a relative term that, still to a lot of Texans means people living right over there. <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah. The people yeah. that you bought your taco from today. Mm-hmm. You know? And that, that are actually like keeping our country together. Right. You know, right. Because they like, actually... Whereas yeah. you're the one that is unaware of the name of even a single species of tree in your yard. I'm right. pretty sure you're the alien. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Different states of being for sure. But you know... um, I think that the, you know, the idea of the, of knowing the other is it's, 
through our very subjectivity, our understanding and abstraction of an external reality is creates a completely 100% unique reading within your own uh, system, your body, your consciousness, you know, the awareness of your thoughts is based on past imitation, you know, past experience, even the past experience on its own is uh, a recipe which creates a different consciousness for every single human being. And um, so we're all getting a different reading from universe. And therefore, us perceiving universe, we will perceive it differently because of our nervous system and our experience and so forth. And then we're taking a reading, which is different because of the same reason. So we get a different frequency, a different vision of what reality is. But so is everyone else. So everyone is the other, and everyone is reading the other at the same time. But I think that it's always wise to what you're talking about. In science, if you're doing research, as important as the um, thing you're studying and the results you get from what you're studying, what instrument you used Mm -hmm. and what settings were used on that instrument are just as important as the research itself because then it's you know replicatable and verifiable and all of that this the conditions in which that information was received should be noted and um that's how i approach human consciousness mm-hmm. and experiencing uh thoughts outside of explanation really you know the further states of consciousness deep you know transcendent states of consciousness always, I believe, should include the instrument they're using to see them, which is your nervous system. Yeah, yeah. You know. That's a fairly recent shift in scientific protocol. When I started down the path to being a, you know, a, a, an academic, that it was very much the case you affect this pretense of objectivity. You know, that you... You don't use the first person in a scientific publication. Right. You don't do it. Whereas now it seems like it's much more the case that people say, well, because because you know when it comes to the replicability of an experiment, if you can run the same botanical experiment underground in a basement so there's no sunlight or moonlight or anything coming in and you run it one way and you run the exact same controlled conditions the next week, you get different results because the moon is in a different phase. There's mm-hmm. subtle gravitational stuff you're not measuring. Sure, It's never a closed system, so you're never really able to replicate the experiment. But you can get people as close as possible by saying, full disclosure, I believe in psychic phenomena. Full disclosure, I do not believe in psychic phenomena. Yeah. It, 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 full disclosure, the, what do you think? Can you read what I believe or yeah. not? Well, <laughs> just the thing like that there is actually a, a weird... Uh, statistical phenomenon in in psi research about this where like people get these self-verifying results on experiments that are otherwise seemingly completely controlled Mm -hmm. and you know people are trying to replicate negative or positive results from people who have the opposite beliefs and they're getting opposite swing in the statistics which suggests something is going on there but it's like until you actually include the researcher himself or herself in this, then you're never going to get to the bottom of this issue. Mm -hmm. 
you know, and the especially sp- any, anything involving subjectivity. <laughs> Isn't that funny that we we're talking about, this, you know, the psychic phenomenon and both of us said the word especially at the same time? <laughs> Just the first three letters. Of yeah, it was because we also psychically heard each other saying it and stopped. Just for anyone listening, we're having the whole conversation. <laughs> they could hear it. So um, in their minds. No, and also, I mean, in, in something like that, the researcher's bias is out of control. You know, I can only imagine the person that would take the time to put their name and weight into psychic research should probably be investigated, you know, to, to some degree. <laughs> because well, I mean, someone who's all doing... All scientists really should be, because, right. I mean, none of us, as human beings, none of us are... Uh, completely purged of our bias totally and that's the that's the whole point of the the instrument yeah exactly and one of the things about science that's you know the uh, science in in america that is just makes you want to just get a hand drill and just just drill right into my forehead is that one of my best friends is a phd in, in molecular biology and i knew him you know when he began his school and now, you know, through the whole process, now he's a doctor. And so hearing about the underbelly of what it takes, how this game is played, you know, it is it boggles the mind that like in our, and I guess, did you do a science degree or something? I mean, I, I did a, I have an undergraduate degree. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess you probably experienced some or a lot of this mm-hmm. where it's like, I couldn't believe the stories he would tell me on a weekly basis of just the, I mean, the amount of like subterfuge from professors, from, you know, the, the, the bias and selectivity of uh, grants of who would get in what labs to even have the time to be able to complete their degree. And it's like, if you don't have the, t- the lab time, then you're not gonna you're not gonna be finishing you're gonna become a doctor because you got to have your research get you put a, your research forward and all this stuff, but then you're auditioning for time to even do your research because of the you know the professors and just the whole the whole system it's like and I mean my friend was you know he, he's very open about this but he's like you know he was literally he was on the edge man like you know whenever he's eight years in or whatever like deep into it. We were having lunch, and he genuinely was like so deep and like stretched out because he's writing. He's writing for grants all the time. You know, you're tap dancing for your supper all the time too. You're mm-hmm. constantly writing grants, and so he's like, um, he was like, man, uh, you know, I, I, I really understand. Like people, people really, you really can go crazy, you know. And I was like, all right, man, I think we need to let's let's take a step back and, and like let's talk about some other aspects of what's going on here because like when you're sitting back being like i think i'm losing my mind like essentially saying that out loud because of the stress and the absurdity and the pressure and like how impossible they make it mm-hmm. for you to even you know accomplish anything you know it's it's like this is where facts come from right? yeah, exactly man exactly and and he was he was a buddhist for you know, I don't know, 20 years. So the fact that he's in there killing worms all day was a funny you know, oh, polarity God. to it. Yeah. C. Elegans was his. Mm-hmm. He actually did amazing stuff. He, um, 909 cells. 
Is that right? Yeah, that's why it's such an effective research animal. You can oh, cool. You can count the cells. Well, I'll tell you, this is perfect for you. So he um, he actually had some pretty impressive discovery that he did, which his whole thing was figuring out how those C. elegans move towards dampness, mm. and because they don't have the sense organs to sense wetness. But yet they move towards it. You know, obviously you see the worms come up when it rains. They come mm-hmm. up out of the, you know, get to the water and stuff. And um, he actually was synthesizing DNA for, I don't know, four or five years. And um, was able to write up a, a theory in paper which explained how they were approaching and understanding and, and uh, sensing dampness. Which was actually ex- published. That's very curious. Amazing. Yeah. yeah. Totally amazing. But at the risk of losing his mind. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And even it's amazing that even after his after graduation, the game doesn't stop there. <laughs> mm. You know? Well, his professor tried to like hijack that paper I just told you about and say, Oh, we should put my name on it and then we'll put you as a c- contributor because I want to get this published in nature. And uh, it was basically like, I won't, if pretty much you owe me, and mm-hmm. if you, I am about, I need my tenure. And so if you want to move forward, essentially, then I'm going to jack your breakthrough. That's honestly one of the reasons that I didn't stay in the academic world. Does that happen to you? It was a kind of a complex falling mm-hmm. out. Sure, but always. one of the things that happened with that was that the paleontological field research program that I was working with, that I'd been working with every summer for years, that I was super excited about, fell apart. It wasn't associated with my university. The head of the program at my university was one of these guys that just jacked people's Mm -hmm. research and told my friend that when she was working in his lab that he didn't think women belonged in science. And it was just one of these these deals where it was like, this guy is... uh, I was doing a an independent study with him, reconstructing the neck of Camarasaurus. It's this, you know, like saurop- like a brontosaurus type dinosaur. It drives a Camaro, right? Yeah, yeah, cool. Yeah, did a lot of cocaine. Nice. <laughs> huge nostrils and the huge um, the eighties glasses that are like the blue tinting, like the mirrored yeah, blue tinting. Yeah. In yeah. fact, if you watch Denver: The Last Dinosaur, <laughs> then you know. So, uh, attempting to reconstruct this this neck from carving each bone out of wax based on the original illustrations from the monograph from the 19th mm-hmm. century cool. which is essentially insane because you're trying to take four maybe five views of something and reconstruct right. it in 3d sure. right, right, right. so you're not going to get an accurate thing sure. but but i learned that he was essentially grooming me he told me basically point blank he was grooming me to correct the mistake that he had made when the uh, paleontological illustrator John Gurchy had studied under him. And now John Gurchy is the guy who does those photorealistic paintings of dinosaurs on the okay. cover of National Geographic. Mm-hmm. And John Gurchy, I guess he felt like John was the, the one that got away, that he hadn't managed to like exploit him. He hadn't managed to keep the rights on the work that he had done while he was his student. Right. And he made it really clear to me. He's like, yeah, you know, if you end up re- creating the entire skeleton you know basically if you end up going like 500 percent above and beyond the scope of this independent study and redo the entire animal and not just its neck 
then you know maybe we can get some models made and and sell them and yeah. like you can get a cut of uh. profits and i was like dude it's a lot easier ways to make money than that. I'm pretty sure I could build my own pyramid faster than I can build yours. <laughs> right. You know, and so that's, and that's, I have other friends that stuck with it in the academic world. And uh-huh. That, that whole issue of the social construction of knowledge. Yeah. Not just the difficulty of having to live in that culture, but how there's the calling it conspiracy might be a little harsh, but it is of academics trying to make it look like everything is okay. We know what's going on. Yeah. We've got our shit together. Yeah. You can trust us. Whereas on the inside, it's like spy versus spy. Yeah, yes, yeah, exactly. And I, I think it is a conspiracy in the sense that they're conspiring to prolong and enrich, in, in, in enrich, in, enrich their own careers off of the work and trust of students. Mm. And I, th- I mean, I've, from what I've heard from various people, that's just pretty common, you know, and it's unfortunate. I'm sure there's great ones out there, yeah. but it blows me away that that, that, that those, that that structure even exists and so much of it is around funding. The question is like, if, if there were not, well, a question mm-hmm. anyway, is that if there were not funding involved, how would that change the game? You know, and it's like every ecosystem develops around the limited resource. Right. You know, so in these cases, the limited resource is tenure <clears throat> and grant money. Yeah. And so you end up with all of the pathology of power right. involved in that. Whereas the scholastic thing, I'm trying to remember the original etymology of it, but the the word school actually comes from a word that meant leisure. It meant like, let's all sit around and, and think about this stuff and inquire into the nature of reality. And it wasn't, it wasn't associated with meeting objectives or acquiring resources. My first thought was just like rap lyrics of how you, <laughs> you know, uh, a school dud guy, oh, yeah. schooly D, leisure D. That makes sense. Interesting. Maybe smarter than we even realized. Because if you're taking somebody to school, it means that you're clocking them out. Yeah. Right. Right. Exactly. It's like, hey, you better just sit back down. Yeah. Let me teach. <laughs> let me teach you what's going on. Yeah. Let me leisure you really quick. Yeah. <laughs> I think just we sit back. Did we just discover the underbelly of of the rap community? Two white guys. Yeah. No, I don't think so. <laughs> no, I'm actually uh, wearing all white makeup. You're good. <laughs> For a podcast interview, you really went above and beyond. There. Well, yeah, well, it's a three-hour podcast. That's why I was late. This is a three-hour, <laughs> the, the makeup department. Yeah, it, it took a while. Uh, you know, it happens. But yeah, man, I think that not having infinite resources is good because it creates pressure and not pressure in the sense of anxiety, but pressure in the sense of mo- motion mm-hmm. and drive. But the pressure's too high right now, and, you know? I think the way it's structured from what I have just been told secondhand yeah. is that um, the stream is way too fine and that if they would dilate that a bit, that the America might not be, you know, 970th in the world in, in science or whatever. Yeah, out of only 158 countries yeah. or so, like we're really, we had to invent 800 countries in order You're to right. fail this hard. We, we, no, we didn't invent them. We just go... We'll go conquer one small country and then break it into 800 pieces. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's what uh, 
Doug Rushkoff called that narrative collapse. Mm-hmm. Everyone's got a different reality now. It's I don't know. I mean, I, I actually haven't listened to any of the episodes that you've recorded with Michael Phillip for Third Eye Drops, but I, mm-hmm. I would imagine given his predilections that you end up spending quite a bit of time talking about the reality tunnels. Uh, a little bit. Yeah. Uh, here and there. We're, yeah. And that, that yeah. you know, if your paper towel tube gets thin enough, then each of them just completely excludes like, you know, a little bit more attention. Like this is where the, the funding and money, you know, it all kind of follows the same dynamics or it seems mm-hmm. to for me that, you know, that the more narrowly focused our attention the more we have to compete for one another's attention. Right. You know, and then the, the, the more that creates these problematic power dynamics in our society. Whereas like, it, were we able to cultivate our attention and dilate it? It's funny that, that we've got, what is it like 10 million people in the United States with an Adderall prescription right now? Probably. That's just constricting that bubble. Mm-hmm further or that tube you know that the i worry about this stuff with pick up on any of this you know there's like 15 entry points to Mm -hmm. this but there's the filter bubble with search results you know and this concern that if we don't at least have the option to pick results that are the opposite pole if we can't get allopoietic search results Mm -hmm. they're only autopoietic search results that reinforce that which already we you know we already virtualize as self right and i feel this very intensely with all of my artist friends on facebook where over the last few years as the algorithms have gotten more and more refined it's gotten harder and harder to reach new people reach new fans mm-hmm. even reach the fans that you've already got all of this wealth and all of this money and i so many more people following me now than i did 5 years ago and so little of my business now as compared to then is coming from these surprise encounters, mm-hmm. spontaneous interactions. You're seeing in the art world the same thing that you're seeing in the academic world. Mm-hmm. It's being throttled back in some way, you know, a little too carefully managed. Right. Right. I mean, you know, if you know, having audience insights so, so that you can define and connect with a group of people and then communicate your message, your product, or whatever it is, is great. But, you know, to a degree, as you said, I do think that the, the more that that gets refined, the, the less that your worldview gets challenged. And that's where growth comes from. Because if you're always just seeing things on Facebook that you like, seeing things that you're getting positive, you know, feedback from and you're 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 liking it and that it continues to only serve you more clicks and more posts like what you like. And you know, if you see something you don't like and you tap on the little uh thing in the top right corner of the arrow, it says, I don't want to see this. You, mm-hmm. you ever done that? Yeah. And then it says why? And then you can tell it why. And it will adjust its algorithm to show you less things like that. So it's interesting that as that you know and and that's just sort of the uh, facebook is a good example because it's out in the open with its selectivity it's chosen uh what and how it's choosing to do things for you and uh, show you things so the more that that occurs uh the more you'll only be looking at yourself essentially you know it's like you're fine tuning everything out of your reality other than your own preference 
And so over time, where will, as, as that continues, and that happens, you know, like with, obviously with, with connectivity over uh, just how humans interact, you can physically also get into much more specific groups and meet much more like-minded people because of those type of things. And that's great to meet like-minded type of people. But over time, you know, as that evolves or devolves or however you want to look at it, at what point will, and perhaps that's why social pressure is so extreme or seems extreme right now. You know, you look at like the presidential, you know, situation is it's like there's just these two white hot sides that are just blown away that the other exists and think that the other are the antithesis of everything that's good and right because they are to each other. Mm -hmm. It's because the two sides are so stream. And of course there's a a 5% of gray area or whatever. Um, But it's because these two disparate sides are so intensely different that that in itself could be a result in some of this, you know, streamlining of egoic preference to sell more things to you on social media, you know, because that's the thing that always kills me. Basically, you know, the more we find what we like, the less we're challenged and the less we're challenged, the less our minds get blown by the difference in the beautiful difference in variation of human experience. Mm. It's like, I like talking to someone that I don't agree with because I learned something. You know, and it doesn't mean like you don't have to go around your day lear- uh, agreeing with everything all day long. It's like it's Gross. good. To, yeah, exactly. It really is. It's awful. It's like it's great to hear, you know, different perspectives and see and experience different things. I mean, like I went and saw the Nutcracker last Christmas because I was like, I've never been to a, a huge ballet production before. I've never seen it like that. And I would have never of like choose to go to that. But it's like. Let me go see what that is like and see, you know, and it was the, one of the weirdest fucking things I've ever seen in my entire <laughs> life, man. Oh, my God. The level of self-awareness. I don't know if you've ever seen that before, but there was like there's one point, like maybe the third act where like all these um, well, maybe in the middle, all these rats, like people in rat costumes come out. And I guess it's like the rat king or something is mm-hmm. dancing around. Mm-hmm. And first I was like. You know, some of those act, those actors are fucking backstage in those rat costumes. Um, that was my first thought. <laughs> Second thought was so after that, and then in the third act, remember the little kids? They're just in chairs on the stage, like in each corner of the front of the stage, with their backs to the stage, watching. Um, I guess it was like a bunch of different countries, like representatives would come out and dance, like in their style. I don't remember what it was, what was up with it circa turn of the 19th 20th century exactly you know, yeah like so prussia it, so, prussia yeah. was showing up yeah and so the kids are watching this i guess it was like a dream sort of a dream sequence yeah but i was like the level of self-awareness in this play that it has about itself of having the kids present on stage in chairs with their backs to the audience watching the you know the the thing themselves which is in their own minds that's brilliant and then of course the music they have a that that was it's wonderful you know it's not like again it's not my preference but musically compositionally it's immaculate as a creative expression anyway you know so i was like wow that's it's amazing you know it's I mean, it's good to go but people do that i think a lot less and less and less and perhaps as you said maybe it's because of um we're all being kind of groomed to go into ultimate ego gratification mode, which is only looking for things that confirm our own biases. Have you seen Century of the Self? No. 
It's a documentary on advertising mm. and how we made the shift with television advertising to from advertising the product to advertising the, the lifestyle. lifestyle. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And advertising the choice and like the illusion of choice, basically. Mm-hmm. Selling people on how now we have... Because the last time I went into a Starbucks, which occasionally happens because I'm trying to be polite and not just steal wireless internet somewhere. <laughs> you know, yeah. I'm like, okay, I'll buy a coffee, whatever. Sure. And I mean, coffee's glorious. And they have... <laughs> 50 different names for it's it's sort of like going into a taco bell you've got mm-hmm. seven ingredients and we're gonna do every permutation of those seven ingredients right. and we're gonna name them each something <laughs> yeah. to make you feel like you're making a choice between a burrito and a gordita or whatever yeah. and it's like you guys I'll, I'll take the i'll take the rat tendon meal and <laughs> the and the science cheese i'll have that please yeah so it's you know, in that respect, it is definitely malevolent. Yeah, you know? corner flour tortillas. Oh, I'll have the flattened Chinese newspaper that's been <laughs> boiled down and added had uh, you know peach pits and uh, apple cores pressed. But into it's interesting it. because you know if if this goes on the way it's going, then by the time these future archaeologists are listening to this, they will have already dealt with the problem of where it the logical conclusion, mm-hmm. which is that we realize the way that, uh, what was it? Maybe a 10 years ago or so the Minneapolis I 35 bridge collapsed because it was too well designed mm-hmm. basically. Yeah. It needs like it was, to flex. Right? It wasn't, yeah. it was designed with no redundancy. Right. And so I read a paper around that time talking about the internet and, and <laughs> sorry, I just had this image in my mind of the actually just losing its will like the bridge was there one day. I was like, man, I'm so tired of being a bridge right now. I'm just going to let go. That would be, that would be the, uh, you're not, you're definitely not uncounting any others in that yeah, EMT yeah. space. <laughs> the article was about, it must've been more recently than that because it was around the time of the 2008 financial thing mm-hmm. or like leading up to that. And people warning saying, look, our global economy is too well connected when we have different countries with their own different economies yeah. one country can fall and it's not going to pull everyone else down and, and it creates it. competitiveness yeah and it's like good. now we have greece can fall one tiny country can fall and it'll screw up the whole system yeah you know and so this issue of of diversity and redundancy our values under themselves now in a way that was completely invisible to us 10 years ago. And I think it's probably going to be even more the case in another 10 years where people are actually actively seeking out, like, show me something I don't like to the point where the, the corporate machine, every fold of that commodification of co-opting that new terrain mm-hmm. is just hilarious and ironic every time. Cause it's like the next thing will be, they will find a way to sell us things we don't want Yes, because they, they were doing it before. And then we like reached our golden age of, I don't see commercials that I don't like. Right. Which you is know? pretty much, pretty much now. But then we're going to get to this point where we're deeply, de- we're desperate because we recognize that we need the diversity of experience. We recognize that we need these contradicting oppositional perspectives and so Hillary fans will be out there like, where is my Trump? And they'll be like, oh, here, here you go. Let me sell you the opponent. You know, let me sell sure. you the other side. 
Yeah. So I think I kind of imagine this being a pendulum swing thing where it goes from the century of the self to the century of the other. Mm-hmm. At some point, I can imagine projecting into being an old man and being like, I'm so glad to see that there's so much emphasis on getting out there and meeting different types of people and encountering difficult, challenging perspectives. And people will be like, oh, God, Dad, it's so much hor- more horrible <laughs> than you think. Like, it's just... So for that reason, I love listening to Christian radio. Mm-hmm. It's one of these places where for years I've I've taken on the exercise of just radio is especially good because you're your own captive audience. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, you can, you can change it, but you're going to be stuck in traffic for half an hour or whatever. You might as well just sit it out mm-hmm. and sit Listen there. Listen to the applause station. Yeah. I was talking about creating oh, yeah, the applause. But like there's, yeah, I think on the web, it's a little, I've, in my own experience, it's a little harder to pin myself in front of something that I don't immediately enjoy mm-hmm. on the radio. Be like, eh, okay, maybe a song I like is coming on next. I'm going to like this song. Mm-hmm. I'm going to sit here and find out why this song is playing to millions of people right now. And sit there and actually appreciate it. Yeah. Take that perspective. And also, sit in the you, other chair. you can appreciate it without liking it. I, I think that might be the key to what you're talking about, mm-hmm. is appreciating something without liking it. That's an interesting point. But I think that if you appreciate something enough, you find yourself. You get a little stock. Is, you can get some Stockholm syndrome. It's like you have to like look at it long enough until you see yourself in it, and then you're like, yeah. "It's not that bad." <laughs> it's right. like anyway, it's the same old human thing every time. I wrote a note about that because I was looking at a lot of old notes in writing this book. I've been looking at all these notes about notes I took in class years and years ago. You know, notes I took in workshops of various kinds, mm-hmm. seminars. One in particular was on the working with the psychological shadow. And this exercise was name one thing that you're definitely not. And then name all the ways that you actually are mm-hmm. that thing. Mm-hmm. And that that's actually just a really useful touchstone. Uh, or my, has been for me. <laughs> my first thing was I, th- I thought I'm not not a murderer. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, you scored uh, slippery points for that one, (laughs) right? But I think that's kind of maybe what we're being called to do at this moment historically. If we're going to, you know, I'm not, I'm I'm I don't have advertisers on the podcast, you Mm -hmm. know, but if you were to extract and deduce my ads based on the things that I seem to have to talk about in every episode, Mm -hmm. one of them is like, okay, well, let's situate this conversation historically. Well, really, it would be you know, irrelevant to have advertisers on this podcast if it's meant for people in the future. And so maybe what the thing to do is to come up with products that you think will exist and then start doing advertisements yeah. for them. And so then send any money back in time. <laughs> yeah, either, either money back in time or 20 years from now, whenever that product does come into fruition, you can bring them this episode, but hey, you owe me about a hundred grand because I've already done a ton of advertising for you. In fact, the name of your company came from my podcast. I had a great. We can do one. You know, I had a great uh, product come to mind recently, which was uh, for people who are worried about being buried alive. You know, there people, some people have a phobia or a fear, and it does sound mm-hmm. quite awful. And it was called Killer Coffins, and so they're they're coffins that. And you open them up, but inside it's like an Iron Maiden where there's just a bunch of spikes. 
And so then you put the corpse in there. When you close it, it just lances the body with, with hundreds of really thick steel spikes. And then the tagline was like, if you weren't dead when you were buried, you will be. <laughs> that might actually come in handy in the future that I'm anticipating for us. Oh, yeah? I, I, at first, I thought you, you were going to talk about... Yeah, Discordian type of <laughs> futuristic viewpoint? God, no. Okay. I mean, Discordian, maybe. Well, yeah, dis- dystopian. <laughs> dystopian. No, my my view of the future... I, I meant Discord as in uh, ah, dis- yes. uh, non-harmonious... Well, but I do like discordance. Dissonance, dissonance is in the eye of the beholder. I agree, the, or the ear of the beholder. But you know, it's true. But um, what I was asking was a straightforward question: Was do you think that life will be a chaotic nightmare full of suffering, or do you think it will become more pleasant and more affable? Yes, both of those. Yes, mm-hmm. falling back on our originally established take both paths, right? It seems that, and I won't bore listeners with this right now because I actually do go into great depth about this. Well, they haven't even been born yet. So. On a regular time. Well, then they've already read my book. So, <laughs> but, but, so refresh their memories with the new thing you're about the, to say. The gist of it, as far as I can tell, is that evolution is a function of thermodynamics. It's a way of maximizing entropy mm-hmm. in a given system, which means that evolutionary process obeys the same principles that lead to the formation of river systems. You know, it's a fractal thing. It takes every possible path Mm -hmm. that it can and it dissipates that energy as, as effectively as possible. The energy will seek out smelting in a glass. So you see this in the evolutionary history of earth that every extinction crisis is also a massive radiation crisis Mm -hmm. if you want to call it that you know it's an explosion of new diversity because all of these new niches are created and the more niches that are created the more species there are the more species there there are the more niches are created and overall uh, life basically as a kind of crystal that facilitates the distribution of energy of Mm -hmm. of sunlight what they call like high energy low entropy Mm -hmm. sunlight and then it gets photosynthesized and then devoured and then devoured and devoured. And then we end up emitting a lot more lower energy photons mm-hmm. from the planet than we absorbed. Right. And so like for this reason, like one thing that we can kind of be sure of given the continuity of evolution, like given life, right. you know, even if we blew ourselves up now in another 4 billion years, we're almost guaranteed to have more kinds of life. Yeah, yeah, non, non-human. Yeah. And so stuff, more yeah, stuff. Yeah, so it's like, I mean, even in the short term, there are more more jobs, more kind, more job titles mm-hmm. now than there were 50 years ago. And there will be more, even if we're not thinking about them in jo- as jobs in the way that we think about them now, there will be more social functions, more cultural functions for people in 50 years. Yeah, I mean, just look at sexual pronouns. You know, it's a great example. Yes. Actually, uh, Greg Egan in his book, Distress, talks about viz and ver. Mm-hmm. And he, he like had to invent a whole bunch of extra pronouns to cover a... It's still binary, but it's a spectrum mm-hmm. of genders in his book. I like the astral gendered one. What's that name? Um, the, 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 I you know, identify as with space as my sexuality. 
Oh yeah. Yeah. So so there's <laughs> it's meditation joke. Yeah. <laughs> so that's actually you know that's uh, I was recording. I was reviewing the talk I gave at Boom Festival about this stuff last night, and in there, somebody asked about gender stuff, and it's like, do you really think that we're going to have identity politics mm-hmm. in a hundred years when you can, you know, modify your DNA? at will and print yourself a new set of genitals every day. Right. And well, and you know, that's going to get weird. Porn is going to get really weird. Oh yeah. I'm excited for that. Yeah. yeah. Future, future porn. Uh, if I say anything that's of value to you guys, like serious lasting value, then feel free to just pay me in, in future porn. <laughs> I just want to, I just want to know what I have to look forward to. It's going to be interesting. Yeah. But like this, this issue of identity, actually, you know, this is, this is a, an area I'd be really curious to hear your thoughts on as a meditation instructor, you know, as somebody who is helping people peel away the layers of bullshit mm-hmm. and discover this kernel of essential self. I'd be curious, you know, where, you know, what your thoughts are on the future of identity, you know, and the future of like, do, you know, where do you see this human species going because to me it looks like we're going to end up with some system approximating every individual is also their own religion corporation Mm -hmm. nation state currency gender ethnicity like it just these things won't be like useful functional groupings anymore because there will be you know so much creative range to express ourselves even at the biological and psychological level right right i mean it it just seems to me if you look backwards, you can often see forwards. And I think that in general that people will become, the, the nuance will get so great that it will sort of turn into, um, if you have uh, a bunch of dry oatmeal that you're about to cook <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> and you add water, you have a bunch of little pieces of dry oatmeal and then you boil that and you get, a bowl of mush. The pieces of oatmeal are still in there and you can still see the individual pieces amongst the mush, but it is also a bowl of mush. I think that's what's going to happen. You think we're going to homogenize through extreme subtlety and, you know, to the individual. I think that everyone will probably become so nuanced in their identity that it becomes a tapestry where nu- nuance, you know, the individualistic nuance is so commonplace and so everything that it becomes indistinguishable, which is irony. Sort of like when you run out of names to use as like a, a username and you just end, append it with numbers. And it's like, that seems like the halfway point between a conversation between Corey and Michael and a conversation between like one IP address and another right. where it's like, it's not even, it's not even about this, the name yeah. anymore. Yeah. Yeah. And because, yeah, if you looked at 10 IP addresses, you, you would see the individuality, but it also just looked like a bunch of IP addresses. Yeah. Yeah. So I, maybe, maybe ironically we get to this point where we've exhausted our individuality. Right. I'm where everyone's going to be so individual that we're all going to be exactly like, like burners. I don't know what burners are like burning man. Oh yeah. 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 You exactly. Know? And it's like, as, as far as Burning Man is actually a fairly accurate uh, or useful window into certain streams of trending mm-hmm. 
cultural evolution, you know, as a physicalized internet, you know, in that respect. Yeah. That, that thing about radical personal expression. So what does everybody do? Well, they dress up like a unicorn or they get naked or, you know, you, you still end up sort of when, you know, you get accustomed to the counterculture and then you're like, Oh, you're okay. You're fairy. You're an alien. You're a unicorn. Mad Max. That seems to be the one I see often. Mad Max. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, that's, Maybe it's not a useful question to ask whether you think that that's a hopeful f- future or does it even matter? I don't think it's just a happenstance of the future. Yeah. I mean, every, I think that our current form of identity is no greater or less great than the past or the future. I mean, I think it's just all what is. And I just accept the state of being as glorious and what is in front of my nervous system that's being abstracted. Because being, as I said, you know, whenever I got here, and you were saying we, you know, we'll have a great conversation, and maybe you know you could have a great conversation with my roommate at another time, and I was like, well, me saying hi to him was as great as the conversation that we'll have on your podcast. It's in the eye of the beholder, you know, if you see the value and brilliance of engaging with someone in a moment by just saying hello, and also having a, a rich, you know, uh, contemplative conversation. I mean, to me, they both have the same value. Intrinsic value. Intrinsic value, exactly. Yeah. It's just, just you know, being awake is a continuous state of, of being and interacting with now. And so it's a, a constant gratitude and appreciation for the ability to be conscious of what's happening. And so even negative experiences, I you know, Although they they suck, I still think oh that's it's valuable because I was for whatever reason there was a vibration of consciousness in this you know meat taxi that was able to observe it and that is um, something that I feel like uh, I don't take lightly because hmm. the chances of me existing are next to impossible the math that it worked out that in the planet and the universe that if you believe in the big bang or however you think the cosmos came to be and that there was an an earth in a goldilocks zone and then you know billions years came around and then 150,000 years ago some little monkeyish things beginning to snoop around and then so forth and so forth and so forth, and somehow I am here, the chances of that amongst all of the light years of galaxies and solar systems out there in the cosmos, it's, you know, when they say, you know, that British saying that being born British is like winning the lottery in life, I think being <laughs> born human is like winning the cosmic lottery, man. Well, or just being born at all, you know. That, bring it, let's, let's, this is another another note from our sponsors. <laughs> Let's bring it around all the way back to the first thing we were talking about, which is that issue of encountering the alien, mm-hmm. right? And it's like, well, we're we're going about it all wrong because we're looking for something that's us. So it's it seems very likely to me that the entire the odds that we give ourselves for existing and the likelihood that we think that we have of encountering something truly other mm-hmm. and the way that we frame that search and what we're looking for, 
that all of it is based on some pretty staggering assumptions and that, you know, I, I kind of camp with Terrence McKenna on the notion that if something truly alien shows up to you, you're not even going to, you're not even going to notice it. Right. Because, because it has no reference to your conditioned mm -hmm. nervous system. It's, it's, it's not even going to, it's not even going to blip on your radar. Mm -hmm. You know, the truly alien. So, so that's, you know, I do wonder about, you know, the lottery. You know, what are the odds really? Not great. <laughs> <laughs> one in one, apparently. <laughs> yeah. You know? Like the most rigorous thing that we can say is insufficient data. Mm-hmm. You know? Mm-hmm. But I do like, to the extent that it, it enables or empowers you to appreciate the blessing of your human incarnation, then yeah. I'd say it's just, it's it's a fine thing to, yeah, to sit with. Yeah, it doesn't... It, I guess it doesn't empower me or anything. I'm not, you know, walking around being overly sentimental and, uh, you're not like I won. Yeah, exactly. It's just, Hey man, you know, the, the chances that you're here in the shape you are, are, uh, real slim and, um, a little bit of mindfulness to be able to appreciate that you're getting to experience a life, um, makes the life that you are experiencing, a lot sweeter and richer. Definitely. Well, okay, the last thing, uh, ordinarily we ask people if they have an intentional message for the listening future. Mm -hmm. You know, you want to make it eye contact with that, that video camera, right? you know, and, and <laughs> give the future a little wink or something. In this case though, I think we've established that the not knowing and the questioning and the mystery may actually be of greater value than whatever answers we think we have. Mm -hmm. So I'm actually more curious to know what question you have for the future. Um, did everyone finally realize that their reality is subjective? I've been watching that for for 15 years, being like, when are people going to... This is so obvious. Like, And that's why I keep talking about it, because people still, no one realizes it. So did that ever happen? Do you know you're making interpretations of of <laughs> of what's out there? <laughs> That'll be a fine a fine question to touch base on later. I'm sure. I'm, I can't wait to hear the results. So where can people find your work? Uh, Corey-Allen.com. It's my website. You can check out my podcast, The Astral Hustle. Um, that's that's there. My music is there. Um, there's also links to uh, you know binaural beats that I created are also on that site. Some for meditation, for flow state, etc. Um, but they're not you, they're not your dad's binaural beats, man. They're uh, kind of a different system, different approach, very complex narrative experience. Also, my meditation um, course is called Release Into Now. If you go to releaseintonow.com, you can sign up for that. It's going to begin actually uh, another round of enrollment um, on this Monday, which I believe is the 24th of October. So I don't know when this comes out, but that will be open for a week-ish. So um, you can do that. And uh, yeah, and you can also just find me just out in the world. You know, I might just, <laughs> maybe I'll just walk by. So you can find <laughs> me there as well. Yeah, you got to check his... Google latitude. Yeah, check my Google latitude. You ever think that about that with followers? Like if you're if the amount of people that you have following you on social media 
if they were actually walking behind you or like a crowd that was following you around and that you, the thing that you tweet or that you post on Facebook was if you turned around and said that to 10,000 people, how would it change what you were saying and how absurd it is? That's a very fine question in its own respect that, that asking, you know, are people going to realize it's an interpretation Mm -hmm. seems to be running in parallel with my, do people realize they're having this conversation in public? Yeah. You know, you're like talking shit on Facebook messenger and you're like, are you aware that everything will one day come to light? Yeah. Would you speak this and, way to me in front of your mother? Because you're about to yeah, as soon as yeah. I screenshot this. And I really hope not because me and Michael Phillip from Third Eye Podcast, <laughs> we're talking about charging, doing like a monthly subscription, like nine ninety five or or whatever to our text message feed. Oh, he was telling me it would, it would have gotten you excommunicated. Who, me? Both of you. He said, no, that's the thing, man. Is I'm open. I would happily read that transcript on as a form of the next podcast. <laughs> All right, man. I got to wrap it up. Well, that sounds good, man. It was a pleasure to have you. Thank you so much. I, I look forward to it. chatting with you more. It's it's obvious that there's plenty to talk about here. I didn't feel like that. No, I'm just joking. Well, yeah, we'll do another one in the future, man. Good. We disagree. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Take care. Love it. Thank you. Probably won't figure it out.